Hello, and welcome to this episode and a special set of episodes of the Decarceration Nation podcast from the Smart on Crime Innovations Conference in New York City. I say we because I'm thrilled that our web guru, Robert Alvarez, was able to join me in New York City for the conference. As a result, Robert and I got to interview several thought leaders in the criminal justice reform field. The episode you are about to hear is one of a series of five interviews, which we'll be releasing over the next two and a half weeks. Each episode will be intentionally shorter than our normal episodes running from, they'll probably be running between 20 and 30 minutes. Okay, here we go. I hope you enjoy these special Decarceration Nation podcast episodes from the 2019 Smart on Crime Conference. Hello, this is Robert Alvarez, and I'm here with Josh B. Ho, and we are Decarceration Nation. We're live at the Smart on Crime Innovations Conference 2019. Uh, I want to introduce Nick Turner. Nicholas Turner is the president and director of the Vera Institute. Under his leadership, Vera is pursuing core priorities of ending the misuse of jails, transforming conditions of confinement, and ensuring that justice systems more effectively serve America's growing minority communities. Prior to his work at Vera, Nick was both a managing director at the Rockefeller Foundation and an associate in the litigation department of Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison. Josh? Yeah, welcome to the podcast, Nick. Josh, it's great to be here. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks, Robert. Thanks for doing this. Um, So I have several friends who uh, recently made a trip overseas with your organization. They all rave about the experience. It's been a huge inspiration to them. Uh, in their work. Can you talk a little bit about the the whole, how it all started and what happened when you started taking people to see prisons in other parts of the world? Absolutely. So um, Vera has, over the course of the last uh, six years or so, probably taken six or seven trips, um, uh, brought delegations of people to visit Germany and the Netherlands and Norway and to see how those justice systems operate. I'll begin by saying that, um, that I personally don't deserve credit for having conceptualized the idea. The Initially, the idea was um, born of uh, the, the prison legal office, which was doing litigation around conditions of confinement in California. They reached out to us even before I got to Vera um, to uh, pursue this idea, this notion that if you could take a delegation of Americans who obviously live in the parochial environment of the system in which we work to see something radically different, um, that it might help to shape their ideas and then what they end up pursuing. That's something that I uh, took up. I loved the idea when I started at Vera in late 2013. Um, it, it was immediately something that I wanted to take on. Uh, what I saw from previous efforts was um, how transformative it was for corrections administrators, for legislators and so on to see a place like Germany that incarcerates at a tenth the rate we do, where everyone is who's facing prosecution, 85% of them get a sanction of a day fine, uh, where they wow. have things like open prisons, meaning places where you uh, may, you know, you'll have to sleep, but you will leave every day to go to work or to school. Um, where corrections officials are, or, you know, officers are trained um, for two years, um, not just around security, but what it means to be a, a good therapeutic assister, a, you know, a, someone who communicates well, who solves problems. Um, it was a radically different system. And I 
heard about Vera's first trip, and I, the first thing I thought was, I want to figure out how to get that in front of the eyeballs of millions of people. So we persuaded 60 Minutes to come with us. Um, so we've taken these trips, and they've been really dramatic in terms of the way they've opened people's eyes to see that it is indeed possible to construct a system that's rooted in a commitment to human dignity, where incarceration or the deprivation of liberty is the only punishment, not the conditions, not the way you're treated. It's not dehumanizing. It's really meant if you are unfortunate enough to be locked up, everything that is everything else about the system is organized around trying to help you to succeed when you're released. And to see that norm in action um, is a remarkable thing. And many of the people who we've taken on these trips have said that they are um, life changing. Yeah, and, was, I would, and I would agree. I was literally just at dinner with uh, David Sfavian uh, oh, yeah. last week and uh, a, a good, probably the best 15 minute slice of the, of our dinner was talking about his experience. I think it was Norway, but uh, Germany and Norway. Germany and Norway. I mean, one of the things that's so special about the trips that we, that we try to do is we try to also bring together people who might not ordinarily be in the same space together. So David and a number of other leaders from uh, you know, from right-leaning institutions together with uh, grassroots, other formerly incarcerated leaders from progressive institutions, with corrections administrators and, you know, people in philanthropy. And so it gets people talking because you see this thing that sometimes is just eye-popping and you get to turn to someone who has a very different perspective and say, what do you make of that? It's, you know... You're a corrections officer, or you're a corrections administrator, or you're a, you know, the head of the Michigan un- Union. Can this be done in our country? What would it take? Uh, what are you having a hard time believing? And so it just opens up a lot of, you know, I, I think a lot of, uh, sort of strands of communication that, that, um, might not otherwise exist. I think it's a really interesting way to do it. We were talking about David, and I believe right next to us having an interview just a few feet away is, is my friend Topeka, uh, Topeka Sam, and, uh, I believe now they're really good friends because of this trip that yes. they took together. And so this is also a way that somehow a lot of the, I think the, maybe some artificial barriers in our own movement have been uh, bridged for, a, you know, kind of a corny way to put it, but bridged yeah. uh, by this, uh, the way you all put a lot of this together. That's very much been part of the, you know, the the intention. And I think what we recognized is that we wanted to um, convene and join people together and to, and to have as broad a group of people experience this. And, you know, there was no price of admission. It was like, come, figure out how to integrate this into your view and your work. Whatever you do with it is whatever you, you do with it. But we think that this is going to be something so transformative for you that you will, um, that you'll forever think about your work in a different way. I certainly have. And my sense is from folks that I, you know, that I've been on these trips with us that they have also. Is there any uh, particular just story or two that you just off the top of your head that you were just like at the moment was like jaw dropping for you or something that? Yeah, this is a time. I mean, well, there, there are, you know, first of all, I mean, I set out like the statistics, which are just mind boggling. 85% of people who are going into, you know, who are touched by the criminal legal system there are, are their sanction is a fine. Compare that to the United States. Life sentences that are not longer than 21 years. Um, you know, again, a, a therapeutic setting. So, but I, you know, there are one story that I, the very first time I went, I was um, stunned. We were in a maximum security facility and we're standing in the hallway and we're talking. It's a big group, maybe about 20 of us Americans. 
and a gentleman in his street clothes walks by and he, you know, waves a little bit meekly, um, you know, and says, excuse me, in, in German, and he walks past. And this is a maximum security facilities where people are, you know, serving uh, long sentences for Germany. And he pulls his keys out of his pocket and he puts them into a, his door and he unlocks the the door of, of his cell and he takes off his shoes and puts on slippers um, and then walks in and then you hear the lock click. And, you know, and there was, and if you, it was something that you would see in your apartment house um, if you lived in New York. I mean, just sort of a nice nod, hello, civil, respectful, not the stand on the yellow side of the line, up against the wall, what, you know, I mean, none and of that. And when the door closes, they're the ones doing the closing most of the time. Right, and so, you know, here's this amazing thing, and we asked this question, We when we walked past his um, his cell, we saw that there was no peephole. And so the, one of the Americans said, well, I don't see a, a, a peephole, why is that? How can you check on people? And the German, the warden said, you know, perplexed, he was like, well, People have a zone of privacy and we respect that. And why would we, why would we ever want to have a peephole in the window? And this is in the door. And so the very idea that you're not leaving behind, you know, these, um, you know, these rights, a right to privacy in prison. I mean, and so just to, and then to watch the whole delegation just look at one another because it was such a, Remarkable fact. It is a little sad and ironic in a sense that you're hearing about protecting liberty as a core principle somewhere else when that's supposed to be our brand. <laughs> yeah, well, right. You know, there's there's been a you know I I love this country, but there's been a lot of lot of myth making in the in the country. So it is our it is our it is um, we haven't quite lived up to that brand. So to shift gears a little bit, you know, I'm a pretty big supporter of your work to reinstate Pell Grants. So you all put out a big report last year. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, you know, I'm uh, really excited about that report. That's something that we did in partnership with the Georgetown University Law School Center on Poverty and Inequality. And what we basically wanted to do is say, well, what would the return on investment be if we were to um, repeal the ban on Pell Grants for incarcerated students. And, and the long and short of it was that whether you look at uh, the measure of, of return as uh, higher levels of employment, higher levels of income for people who would be leaving prison, reduction in recidivism, reduction in uh, corrections, uh, you know, correctional budgets and money spent, um, uh, establishing at scale um, post-secondary education in, in prison would provide all of those things. And it would also make facilities safer because people would have something to focus on and goals to pursue and an institution that was supportive of that. So for, for us, that report was really a win, 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 win. I don't know if I have enough wins in there, but you got the idea. And that was part of a, a really important part of a campaign that we're participating in with a number of other amazing organizations to here at the 25th anniversary of the 1994 crime bill, figure out how we can roll back this, you know, the, the ban on Pell Grants for incarcerated students. And we're feeling uh, somewhat hopeful around the bipartisan consensus. That this is a thing that ought to be done. Um, do you think the vehicle will be the real act or do you think it's, cause I think it's in the real act. Right? Yeah. I mean, it, it is, 
in the real act, it's amazing. There are no exclusions, you know, meaning that it, that it doesn't matter what you are in for. You can, you know, you can um, participate in this, um, you know, and, and get these resources to pursue your post-secondary educational goals. Um, the talk has been that it is also that if there was to be a big higher education act, um, like a full reauthorization that it would be in there. I believe that, that there was an exclusion that would go back to 1992 days when people who were, uh, you know, had life without parole would not be eligible. Um, but the question is whether that HEA is going to move or not. I think odds are it probably won't. And so I think we are right now at the cusp of thinking, and maybe you have some intel for me, no, but, you know, of uh, trying to figure out, like, what the right vehicle is when there clearly is support on the right and on the left for this. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we're, we're enthusiastic about it. Um, are there ways you're hoping people get involved or try to help uh, with this project? There are. I mean, I think that one of the things that we, that our investing in futures report that we just talked about, um, that has uh, that has been um, really remarkable is that we're actually seeing a lot of um, people in the business community. So we're seeing chambers of commerce come out and support this. This is com- I mean, it's a common sense reform. They, I think they come at it from two perspectives. Maybe one is that increasingly Americans, since they distrust every other institution that exists in the country, are looking <laughs> more and more to CEOs and corporations to be the paragons of virtue and value. I, you know, that's a funny statement in and of itself, but it's definitely true. So I think that, that, you know, they're owning this issue a little bit more. It might be because there's a tighter labor market. And so, you know, as, because there's a tighter labor market, people are thinking about where their labor force where we can, where it's going to go. So, but I think that, um, you know, we'd like to see, um, everyone stand up for this, whether it's uh, chambers of commerce or whether it's college administrators. We absolutely have the correctional administrators. I mean, they know that this makes perfect sense. Um, and I think that if this was something that was just done on the merits, it would easily get through. I think it's just, you know, the, the worry that I have is obviously just the political environment in D.C. and the extent to which that allows anything to get, yeah. to get through. That is, uh, that is tough, getting the, the, all the things lined up that need to get. I mean, uh, you know, I remember how much trouble it took to get McConnell to let the First Step Act even get on the floor. Yeah. That, that was the biggest battle probably of the whole thing in right. a lot of ways. Right. Uh, one of my real passions is bail reform, and I just recently read that you all are getting uh, kind of uh, started out with doing some work around bail. Is that correct? Yeah. The, you know, Vera started um, in 1961. Because the mayor of New York had a problem with overcrowding in the houses of detention in Rikers Island. And he asked um, a philanthropist, this guy named Louis Schweitzer, um, to help sort of the, let's call it a public-private partnership to try to help solve the problem. Louis Schweitzer then hired a guy named Herb Sturz, who ended up becoming the first founder of Vera. And Herb essentially studied the issue of, uh, you know, overcrowding at Rikers, why there were so many people locked up, and it was because people couldn't afford to pay bail. And so he constructed the first ever, we describe as a randomized control trial in a criminal justice context, testing bail um, against, uh, you know, essentially looking at a battery of, of factors that relate to someone's um, uh, connections to community, um, connections to family, and it's almost like a risk assessment 
and seeing which would be more effective in determining and predicting whether someone would return to court. And it turned out that the latter was. And that spawned something called the Manhattan Bail Project, which ended up transforming practices here in New York, informing the 1966 uh, Bail Reform Act and move and beginning at that point to move the country away from money as a determinant of someone's liberty. Obviously, then, you know, we went through the 70s, 80s, 90s, <laughs> and things got way worse. And Vera certainly did not solve that problem. The problem, you know, it, that big rock rolled back downhill. So um, what's your take on kind of where we're at now? I, you know, it's... um. I'm feeling hopeful about it. I mean, I think that this is an issue that has absolutely captured the public's attention. For folks like us who have been in the justice reform space, it is not particularly new that, um, you know, that uh, this notion that money can be a determinant of someone's liberty and you can be, whatever, rich and a murderer and get out, you know, pre-trial and you can be poor and, uh, you know, and... Uh, um, a, a fare beater, parking tickets and yeah. you're going to be in. But I think that that the sense of outrage that Americans have, um, uh, you know, have had in encountering that has spurred a lot of attention. There's been amazing litigation from Civil Rights Corps and ACLU and, and on earlier, others, and um, and so I think we're making some movement. The real challenge is. Um, is for folks is to think about, well, what's the, you know, if not bail, money bail, then what's the right response? And, you know, and so there, that falls into the challenge of, should we have risk assessments or not? And how racist are risk assessments? And can they ever be better than standard operating procedure and discretion? And I think that's a case by case thing, but we should be concerned about, Risk assessments is sort of reifying um, bias. But in New York, I'm really proud, and we played a big role in this. Um, we helped to move pretrial reform that ended up not relying on risk assessments and say, essentially said all um, misdemeanor, nonviolent misdemeanor offenses and, a, um, and then some felony uh, nonviolent offenses are simply not bail eligible. And that bill was signed into law. Um, in April of, of this year, and it's projected that it will it will reduce the j- the statewide jail population by anywhere from twenty five to forty three percent. That's remarkable in and of itself. Um, so so I think New York now is a different model than uh, New Jersey or than California, and I hope that other states will take this on legislatively. And so you also have a, a program called In Our Backyards. I think my yeah. friend Jasmine is working on that. Uh, Jasmine. Can you talk a little bit about that? Jasmine Heiss is amazing. This is a, I mean, in, a, in some respects, this is uh, one of the things that I, I think is signal of like the very best of Vera. I had a bunch of researchers who um, came to me a few years back and said, look, can we get an internal investment to build a database? I said, well, what would you ever want to do that for? And they said, well, look, you know, we don't know anything about jail populations in this country. The federal government collects information through a census, um, you know, every seven years. And then there's a survey every year and they publish one report. But we have no idea about the long-term trends in the use of jail. And we want to grab that data that's available, made available by the Department of Justice, put it into a usable database. And one of the things that we – so we did that. We invested in that. And it turned out that 
Incar- that what we learned is that incarceration is in everyone's backyard. So what do I mean by that? Most people think that the problem of mass incarceration in this country is largely a big city problem. I mean, I think that that's the association. If you were to say, snap, where does incarceration happen? Who does it happen to? That's what people would say. But what that database told us when we did an analysis was that big cities are actually now uh, really successfully working to decarcerate. Take New York as an example, or New Orleans, or Oklahoma City. And the places where incarceration is really growing uh, are in small cities and in rural counties. So in the past five years, big cities have dropped their jail rate use by 18%. In rural counties, it's grown by 6%. So that's a, that is a phenomenally important data point to understand because that means we can cut 50 in all the big cities and stuff's going to keep growing in the 2,000 small rural communities that are impoverished that haven't sort of, you know, caught on to the, you know, I think the ethos of, 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 of reducing incarceration, where there probably is some more conservative politics where racial disparities, I mean, what's growing in both of these, in both, in rural counties, uh, is not only white incarceration, but also, um, incarceration of people of color at a hot, far higher rate than in, in cities. So it's an incredibly important phenomenon, not well understood at all not well-resourced. Um, and Jasmine has been going around the country and figuring out how we take our data and work with local groups from Tennessee to North Carolina to Colorado uh, to help inform their advocacy so that they can do things like stop uh, what she describes as a quiet jail boom, these counties that are just building more and more jails. And if they can't fill them with the people who live in the county, then they... Um, get they they contract with federal marshals to have federal pretrial folks stay there, or they contract with ICE. So this is something we all need to be paying attention to. It's happening in all of our backyards, um, and it's not just a city problem. It really is a rural one too. Since we're in New York City, I probably should ask a question about the Rikers campaign. Uh, it's been one of the most symbolically important, as well as a campaign that hopefully, and it's already starting to impact a lot of people's lives. Uh, have I hear you've been pretty involved in this. Yeah. Can you kind of give us an update? I know there's a lot of new news. Yeah, I can't. I can. I mean, I would say so to begin at the beginning, you know, in 2015, uh, you know, the idea of closing Rikers, um, which was put out by Glenn Martin when he had just gotten just leadership started and, and Neil Barsky, who's the founder of the Marshall Project, you know, Neil wrote about this. And I remember thinking at that time, like, that's fantasy. Like, that is not going to happen. And being somewhat skeptical of the value of even pursuing that goal. Flash forward um, to 2016, it became a real agenda issue um, due to a lot of good organizing. The Speaker of the City Council um, created a commission uh, that was chaired by Chief former Chief Judge uh, Jonathan Lippman, to look at the issue. I was on that commission. So while Just Leadership and others were doing the very good work to on the ground to agitate for the closure of Rikers, this Blue Ribbon Commission studied it and wrote a report and said, in fact, it can be done. That if we drop the jail population, which at that point was around 11,000, if we can get it to 5,000 through a bunch of policy and practice changes, um, and if we were to build new facilities in the boroughs that are smaller, 
more humane or um, organized around, you know, healing and restoration. We just talked about, you know, German and, and Norwegian prisons, but can we bring that into, um, you know, into the way in which we do our work? Can we create smaller facilities that are closer to lawyers, that are closer to families? And the commission said yes, and we, and, uh, and there's a bunch of pressure on the mayor, and the mayor finally said, okay, I'm going to do this. Pretty amazing political win, because if you think of the mayor, um, who was, um, right at the end of his first term, that meant that he was pursuing a thing that he'd never get to cut a ribbon for. Like, this would be done in, like, whatever, at best, seven or eight years. Some other mayor would get to take credit. Nonetheless, this has happened. We've gone through the land use proceedings and, and there's a real debate right now about whether that, the idea of creating the borough based facilities and invest and spending a lot of capital money on that, um, is the right thing. And there are folks, uh, um, on the progressive left. There's a no new jails coalition that is pushing really hard and saying, no, we shouldn't build these facilities at all. Um, and I think that the pushing is helpful in that it is, um, it is forcing the city to reckon with whether it should, whether this facility should be even smaller than what was originally planned. So they've now moved from a projection of 5,000. And I think that we can get the city to around, you know, 3,500 beds, maybe even less than that, which is remarkable considering that New York's jail population was 21,000, 22,000 in the mid nineties. I mean, that is a dramatic reduction. And maybe it'll get the city council to actually put some money, and I hope that it does. What I would like to see is more investment in community um, and, you know, reinvestment in community and services that are not related to criminal justice. Uh, maybe legislation that supports culture change within the Department of Corrections to make the proposal better. But that proposal is coming up for a city council vote, and it's uh, and it's a tough vote for the city council. Um so I think what I think will happen, I think what should happen is that the proposal that the mayor has, has um, started out with is uh, significantly improved, smaller size facilities, um, uh, you know, a way of taking those, you know, designing those facilities so they can be adaptively reused for something else other than jails if we continue to shrink our jail population, investment in community. And then uh, legislation that goes to standards and expectations around um, the culture within the Department of Corrections and um, in investing in a more humane, rehabilitative environment. What I would be really worried about is if the council um, uh, is scared off from this, and the council's running a little scared, to be frank, um, that there will be no political leader in New York who's ever going to look at this and say, oh, yeah, yeah. All right, so de Blasio just spent four years on this, and the city council just spent four years on like That's the thing I want to take up, and we're going to have Rikers then for a long time, where the where the city can build any... Rikers has eight jails on it, and the city can build as much as it wants. It's not subject to any kind of regulation. And so I worry that if we let perfect be the enemy of the good here, um, we will never get Rikers closed, because no... no politician, and let's just bear in mind that everyone we're talking about are politicians, um, is going to want to take on a battle that they just saw their predecessors get slammed on that they don't think they can win. And then we're going to be right back where we were in 2015, which is 
with the notion that closing Rikers is, is impossible. So we're at the uh, Smart on Crime Innovations Conference. Uh, you're speaking or have spoken. I, I've lost track of the schedule. Uh, what is your presentation about? Uh, so we look, this is actually what we just got finished talking about from uh, European systems to this debate a- around what's happening in New York is exactly what I what I was talking about earlier today with Vanita Gupta and oh, right on. Um, and with and with Daryl Atkinson. Um, and that's, that is, how do we, how are we ambitious enough to think about transformation? Are we talking about transformation or reform? And what is it, and what's the role of incrementalism? And how do you know when you recognize whether you're doing something transformative or whether you're doing something that is valuably incremental because it is the first stair step on a staircase of 10 steps? And, and so we had a 90 minute discussion that really focused on, on that. It's easy to look back historically and identify. You know, Did Darryl, you come to any conclusions, I guess? <laughs> well, I mean, I think that we came to, you know, that, that, that it's a both and that, you know, that incremental reforms are important if they are pointing towards a North Star and you understand that right away. That that's what you're aiming for, that it's not just transactional, let's get what we can and, you know, put points on the board and get out. That was one thing. Um, and the, and that when we look back at history, when we look back, Daryl walked us through sort of the history of reconstruction and then the second reconstruction, you know, the civil rights era and said, you know, that was a series of legislative wins over the, in both certain, you know, amendments in the first one and then various civil rights acts in the second one that, uh, added up to something meant to be truly transformative and that that's what our endeavor is. And the third thing that we arrived at is that it's incredibly hard when you're in the middle of the game to be able to identify, okay, that's clearly an incremental thing. <laughs> like the first step actor, yeah. there's been a ton of debate around. Um, I or was involved in way too much of that debate. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I bet I'm, I am sure you 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 were involved and heard way yeah. too much about it too. So, so I think those were some of the themes that that we that we tackled. But look, the one thing that I'll say that's really amazing, um, and I think you probably have some appreciation for this, is that um, you know five years ago, seven years ago, ten years ago, who was even talking about transformation? Who I mean. Where what you know the idea that we're even having the debate in New York City, where the the there is a the potential to get Rikers closed, to create smaller, more humane facilities that ends up sort of locking in a reduction of seventy five, eighty percent of the jail population from you know the mid nineties, and that the argument against that is that's not radical enough. <laughs> I mean, you know. We've lived in this world for a long time. It is. It doesn't take too much backtracking to remember when all we were doing was playing defense um, while the wave washed over us. So I think we're in this really remarkable moment in time. I think that the momentum is going to continue. And I was thrilled to be able to be up on stage and talk about like how one distinguishes the you know between transformation and you know reform that is less transformative that's a so, that's a great place to, to be yeah. it makes me very hopeful i'm optimistic and that is a very opt i feel very there's a great way for us to finish out our interview day because that's very good uh, is there anything else you want to leave us with about the continuing work of the vera institute 
No, I don't know. I don't think so. Other than I'm just, I'm really excited about it. I mean, I feel very, I'm the fifth person to, you know, to run the organization. It's 58 years old. I'm the first person of color to, you know, to do it. And I, and I'm incredibly excited, uh, you know, at this moment in time, um, to be able to, uh, participate in this, you know, joint exercise that we're on together to radically transform, um, our legal system so that it actually delivers justice and that we get wins and that we are, you know, allied a place like Vera, which, um, you know, which is, uh, you know, a big research institution and, you know, drives out of concrete change, but where we work with allies and see a growing group of formerly incarcerated people who are leading organizations, the field is getting a lot stronger and, so, you know, stuff can be hard at times, but there's not a day that I um, don't wake up and feel incredibly enthusiastic um, and optimistic about what we're doing together jointly. And Vera is part of that that transformation. And I'm just I'm I'm really I'm really lucky to be to be um, there and serving as director. It's an amazing time. Well, thanks so much for doing this and for being such a you know, great, happy way to end the day. So. <laughs> thanks, Josh. Yeah. I appreciate yeah. it. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed that special episode of Decarceration Nation. Any content from the Smart on Crime Conference was courtesy of the Center for American Progress, John Jay College of Criminal Justice, and the Draper Richards Kaplan Foundation. As always, you can find the show notes or leave us a comment at decarcerationnation.com. And make sure to check out our new t-shirts, sweatshirts, and hats. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can do so from patreon.com slash onpiratesatellite. You can also support us by leaving a five-star review from iTunes or like us on Stitcher or Spotify. Special thanks to Andrew Stein, who does the editing and post-production for me, and to Robert Alvarez, who's been helping with the website. Thanks so much for listening to Decarceration Nation podcast. See you next time.